Slow Spin Society podcast. I am Paul, your usual co-host, and today I am with your other usual co-host, Fabian. Hello, Fabian. Hi, everyone. And today's guest is none other than Amy, but you might know her better under her Instagram tag at a danger PDX. Welcome, Amy. It's awesome to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, yeah, there is. Uh, we're going to talk about different subjects today, and uh, a lot of you guys asked for a complete episode on the candle track because I guess there's a lot of interest around that, right? And yeah, yeah, I figured out the closest thing from like an expert of candle track would be would be Amy. <laughs> I don't know about that, but we'll we'll talk about it. <laughs> right all right <laughs> speaking of candle truck and i mean let's go into 90s aluminium frames if you want to heard about pellizzoli gator skins or fabian sourdough <laughs> bread yeah you you might want to heard about that too well you can learn more about all of that by listening to the pre-show you can access the pre-show and the extended conversation of the podcast by going on our patreon page patreon.com slash podcast but we'll talk more on that later. Fabian, I'll let you introduce the main topic of today. Yeah, so like Paul said, uh, there was a lot of interest around the Candle track. Well, there is a lot of interest around the Candle track. And uh, although we probably cannot fill an entire episode uh, about just this one frame, we can try to discuss many parts of it. And um, yeah, like we said, Amy, you're here with us. Could you maybe like briefly introduce yourself for people who may not know you? Sure. I'm Amy Danger. Uh, I am a fixed gear enthusiast living in Portland, Oregon in the United States. Uh, I have a small but mighty collection of track bikes, primarily from the 80s and 90s uh, when design was adventurous and you know competition was really fierce to shave fractions of seconds from race times. Um, and uh, a small part of my collection is Cannondale Track. So I'm really glad to be talking to you today. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, Candle Track is a, is a legendary frame among like contemporary fixed gear culture. But yeah, you have a lot to know. You know a lot about that. And Paul, you as well know a lot about the history of Candle Track, right? Mm, I mean, I know I know what's available to know online, you know? <laughs> it's a, my, my knowledge is not super extensive, but I mean, I know a little bit. So the, the Candle Track uh, 3.0, so produced in the in the nineties, I think it was from ninety two to ninety six. Is that correct? Yeah. It yes, I think that's correct. Um, but there's rumor that there was a version of it produced uh, in nineteen ninety. Uh, maybe it was a prototype though. It um, it did not have. It had an integrated seat post clamp. That's the only way that you can kind of tell. It looks really similar to the ones that are ninety two to ninety five. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think the bulk of what we consider the sort of iconic Annandale track was primarily from 92 to 95, although there were some sold in 96 that were produced in 95. So it was like out of six series aluminum, oversized aluminum, which was quite new at the time and a steel fork. And it, it had like that reputation of like a super short wheelbase and that really steep head tube angle. Just 
a quick question. How do you think it got such a legendary status among track bike enthusiasts? Oh, you know, you know, who knows? <laughs> I think that like everything else, it kind of started with the artists. You know, the messengers were looking for quick handling, low maintenance rigs back in the 90s, and that included the Cannondale track. So I think fixed gear culture today kind of likes to draft off of that messenger energy. So that's probably where some of the, the fame and, and the, the iconic nature of the Cannondale track began. But I think, you know, the frame in and of itself commands respect of race enthusiasts. You know, it is, it's a sexy frame. It's clean. Uh, that tight geometry is just unbeatable. It's, it was super lightweight and it's incredibly efficient. You know, that the stiffness, that large down tube, that, that two inch down tube, you feel it when you're on that bike, you know, you, you put that that uh energy into that pedal and it goes right to that that rear wheel it is there's no waste and this this frame was made in the u.s during a time that all of the heavy hitters in europe were dominating the market and it held its own you know this crafty little thing held its own and it's it's super well crafted for a production frame you know the the filed welds are, are really beautiful and i think that's why it continues to be an icon because it is it is a beautiful well-functioning bike and because of its kind of natural legendary place as a well-crafted well-designed machine but also because of the street appeal of that sort of messenger dna that folks want to associate with yeah i mean i can agree with all of that as well even though i i don't know that much about like bike geometry and stuff it's it's a really nice bike it looks very good it's very fun to ride and yeah i can understand why it's so highly sought after nowadays Maybe not to the full ex extent of the resale value, but it's a very, very special bike. But yeah, moving on to the price, because back in the 90s, I'm sure it was much, 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 much cheaper than what they're normally going for today, especially for like the more, more sought after frame sizes, like, I don't know, 55 centimeters. Um, do you think there's a way to justify the price that people are selling these for now, given its whole history and the scarcity? Or is it just, yeah, as resellers being resellers? Yeah, you know, I don't have much to say about price. You know, I think that rare sought after things, they, they creep up in price. You know, they're, they're worth what people are going to pay for them. And now they're considered collectibles. So they command the price of a collectible. I mean, back in the 90s, you know, they were mass produced to be used, which is exactly what people did. They used them. And they're aluminum frames. And aluminum has a, a, a not a forever shelf life, you know. So the ones yeah, that yeah. were pampered and the ones that were beat to hell, um, the, I mean, the ones that were pampered and, and the ones that, you know, weren't destroyed out in the, in the streets or on the velodrome, they're gems, you know, some almost 30 years later, if you can find a Cannondale track that was treated well or, or not ridden a lot, um, I, they're, they are definitely commanding high dollars these days. And, you know, there are plenty of other mass produced frames that are being uh, currently built that very, very closely replicate the same ride experience of the Cannondale track. So there's no shortage of the ability to have fun, you know, but if you want to own a nearly 30 year old frame that survived, you know, the nineties and the two thousands, <laughs> <laughs> then they are loved by the world and there's a price that's going to come with that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's a, I, I was uh, looking at, beyond key pista concept uh, the other day because i was like i haven't seen one uh, a nice one in, in a while now so i was just looking on power room and then i was like you know what i'm gonna creep on ebay 
and I'm going to look up Bianchi Pista concept on eBay. Wow. I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they went yep, really that's another one. Yeah. They went, yeah, they went another one. really, really up in price. And I was like, that's, that's incredible. And I mean, even if that frame has have like a major flow, it's still a really, really good looking frame. I never had one. I never ridden one, but uh, I'd love to. And yeah, I was really surprised. I, I saw one. Well, it was complete, but still, it was like three k for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The yeah yeah it was three k. It was like wow. Three <laughs> k. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Does it come with the new ETAP on it or what? <laughs> yeah, but it's it's the same thing. It is the exact same thing. You know, it's in the 90s. These were kind of like these underground the messengers. They grabbed these bikes because they were they were twitchy as hell. You know, they got out on the street and those two, that is literally one of my very favorite. The 2003 Pista Concept is is one of my absolute favorites, hands down. You get on that thing. And it scoots, you know, it is, it is another one of those really efficient frames. It's good looking. Um, the design is really neat. You know, the rear cutout, um, some of the welds aren't terribly sexy, but it really scoots that rear wheel in and gives you just a lot of power right underneath you. And um, the fact that it was a concept bike, so they didn't, I mean, there were a lot of them made, but it wasn't hugely, hugely mass produced over many, many years. And it had a flaw in it. You know, it had that seat post clamp flaw. So a lot of them got trashed and the ones that survived, you know, they're, they're getting up there and then everybody wants to give it a try. So everybody's tacking on a couple extra hundred bucks on eBay, but it's a cool (laughs) little frame, you know, it's it's a little bit of a shame that uh, more people don't have access to it. But there, again, there are also some that are very similar in geometry, very similar in the feel. Um, you can have that same riding experience. But again, if you want one to sit at, you know, while you're sitting on your couch and look at um, the, the OG from the 90s or the, uh, I guess that was early 2000s, you know, you're going to pay that <laughs> that extra t- hipster tax. Yeah. It, the, the only fact that there is 2000 something written big, like in bold in the on on the top tube is just is just cool i'm like ah that's a cool thing <laughs> it is it does make it really really iconic yeah i mean you put it that way it makes it makes sense that like you can have either a bike that's the same in function but perhaps doesn't have the extra like the the label or, or the the history and then you yeah you just lose out on that and then you can pay the premium and you get all of the extra so it really depends on the person but yeah it's just sometimes it's, it's a bit shocking to see the the, the things that these go it for. Is. Yeah, and I you know I've been priced out of both of these games. I I was a Cannondale track enthusiast for you know I've been a decade at least, and and I just don't buy them anymore. They're they're like well out of my reach. And the same with the Pista Concept. I sold my la- I sold yeah. a 2003. I don't know maybe a month ago. A uh, guy was just he'd been looking and looking and looking. He couldn't find one. He just kept reaching out to me. He's like, you gonna sell it yet? You gonna sell it yet? You gonna sell it yet? And I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> You know, you deserve it. You you really want to get your butt on this bike. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get one again because I can't pay three grand for a <laughs> 2003 yeah. Pista Concept. Well, if you're out there, take care of the Pista Concept. Oh, yeah. It's exactly. a nice bike. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Coming back on the on the Candle track, when I got mine, I, I just saw the little quirks on the frame that surprised me at first. And I was like, 
what is that for? And little details. And I was like, why is it even there? So for example, like the, it has a, a rear brake hole. And I was like, why? There's literally track written in bold on the frame too. And it has a rear brake hole, but the front fork is actually not drilled. Yeah. You know, they, uh, in, in the Cannondale track cat or in the Cannondale catalogs, um, was that like 1993, four and five, that's something that they actually wrote into the, the, uh, catalog as, as like a, a cool option. You know, it's, I think they were really encouraging winter riders, you know, who wanted to work on their cadence and work on that pedal stroke to throw a road fork on there and, um, put a brake on the back and, and ride track so they can work on their cadence. It's actually something they wrote in the catalog is, is value added. I think it's really strange. I too think, I mean, with that geometry, with that super tight geometry and depending on the size of the frame, you know, you got that toe overlap to contend with. Um, it, it's a strange hybrid, you know, it's a strange hybrid that they wanted to sell you a tight twitchy track bike, but with the option of turning it into, you know, a, a, a cadence machine hmm. in the off season. Yeah. Uh, something else that, that stood out, uh, is the dropouts. So they're a little bit off centered. They, they have a name. I don't, can't recall right now, but I think I've never seen other bikes was that kind of track dropouts. Yeah, same. I've never seen that. There's no label on them. I, mean, I think I think there are some with numbers on them, but you know, it's got that strange hole and it kind of looks like a fish. You know, it's it's <laughs> a it's a very strange uh, beast. And you know, it's funny because it is so unusual that I actually have grown to really enjoy it. You know, it's one of those things that my eye, if I see a picture of a bike and I'm not sure if it's Cannondale track. I'll scan immediately down to the dropouts because they're so unique and so identifiable mm -hmm. that if anybody tries to recreate, and there are a lot of replicas out there now, if anybody tries to recreate it, they're, they're just yeah. never, ever going to be able to nail that dropout. It is very unique. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if it's just difficult to manufacture or well together, uh, but yeah, it definitely has a, a unique taste to it. Well, I don't think it's terribly functional. You know, I, I think there, there's been so many improvements in dropout design where you can, you know, slide the spacers out so you can, because, you know, if you find a Cannondale track that was actually ridden on the track, you know, where you're constantly changing out your gearing on the back and you, you know, you tighten it back down and then you untighten it, you tighten it back down. There's like big, deep grooves in, in the dropouts. And it's, you know, once... Once you get them in there, yeah, that's it. It's not like you get to replace them. So I think, yeah, maybe it's difficult to manufacture them, but maybe also that's one of the things that we could improve upon is the dropouts. It's it's not a hugely functional design. I find it interesting, but I don't find it terribly functional. Um, like you said, one thing is that they're kind of they're pretty difficult to replicate perfectly, and a common thing I see with like original. Uh, Candle tracks is that people tend to repaint them, maybe maybe not in new colorways or or anything like that, but just replicating the Arctic blue, for example. But I think I saw one of your comments on Instagram a long time ago saying that one thing that they often get wrong is that the original colorway actually has like some gold sparkle in the in the paint job, which lots of people. I mean, maybe I'm misremembering it, but that lots of people that repaint the frame they forget to add that kind of sparkle that the original came with and yeah that I, you're right and i i have been known to to weigh in on that thing because 
one thing as a collector, I, I appreciate the, um, I don't know. I, I, I have two, two ways of thinking about it. One, if you're going to repaint a Cannondale track and you're going to restore it, I mean, there, there's two ways you do it. And you can just go your own way. You can paint it gold and it could be ama- amazing. Or you can try and restore it. And I think if you're going to go in the restoration direction, my personal feeling, and of course, that's with my own bikes and my own collections, and I don't extend beyond that. But my personal feeling is if you're going to try and restore it, you know, do your due diligence. And some of the decal packages out there are not historically accurate. And it just drives me crazy. Like if you're going to go for that, you know, that, that the gold, the, the green that they did back in the day, it was a very, very specific green and it was not a solid green. You know, they call it the hyper pearl highlight or something like that. And if you've ever seen one in person, the reason why the green is called the hyper pearl highlight or whatever it's called, it's something along those lines is that they actually painted highlights into the paint. Like it's not a solid green. And I think there's a lot of folks that try and replicate the green. They look at a photograph of the green. They think they've got the green. So they paint it, you know, monolithic green. And that's actually not the the way the original was was painted. They actually like shot this kind of gold stripe into it to make it look like it was extra shiny, (laughs) you know, like extra vibrant paint or something. And that's hard to replicate nowadays. You know, you'd have to have an incredibly skilled painter to to replicate that because it was such a crazy way of approaching paint back in the day. But mostly it's the decals. You know, the decals, there's some firm on, on eBay that sells, um, supposedly sells these these decals. And I see these decals all over so many restoration bikes and, they, and they're just not correct, you know, and, and uh, it, it, it it bothers me, you know, it bothers me to the point where I actually went out and had a bunch made that were identical to the originals. And I, you know, sold them off to try and get people to kind of go in the direction of a, of a historic restoration rather than a, you know, kind of a, a half-assed restoration where you're yeah. trying to get the color right, but you're not trying to get the decals right. And so, you know, people are going to do what they do and that's yeah. fine. That's their bike to do with what they want. But when I restore mine and I've done a few, um, I, I really try and get it right. And it's hard to do because the paint nowadays, we're not allowed to have the same uh, paint concoctions that we had back in the 90s. You know, there's a lot of environmental regulation around what they had in the paint uh, back then that we don't allow now. So it's actually incredibly difficult to get it right. It's it's not hard to get the color right. It's hard to get the action right. You know, when you look at it in the sun, when it's leaning up against the wall, it's it's really hard to get that um that accurate but there's been so many people who have done such an amazing job of getting the color close enough that you get on that bike and you feel like you're on a you know an og cannondale track from the 90s and and that's what it's ultimately about is are you still having fun on it yeah so like like on that point then a skilled painter has to actually have seen the cannondale track and the original one in person then because these that type of aspects you cannot really tell from just having an instagram picture or something that's exactly right. You know, I, I think that's where it happens is how many people have two Cannondale tracks? You know, like how many people can be like, oh, I want to restore this one. So I'm <laughs> going to take this original one to my painter and have them. I'm like, who has that? So I get it. Uh, yeah, and, every, you know, feasible. I don't even know how many times over the last 10 years people have reached out and, and wanted to know the color code. You know, what's the color code? What's the color code? And, yeah. you know, it is it is a complete <laughs> fabrication that there's a color code. There is a lot of people that absolutely insist that they have the color code. And it's it's just absolutely untrue. There mm-hmm. there are 
there are colors, you know, people have sent me the color codes and I have done my research and um, my painter's like, nope, that ain't it. Um, I think you can get close using those color codes, but it wasn't necessarily the color. Again, it was the type of paint and the way it lays up and the way it lays up in the nineties is completely different than the way it lays up um, nowadays. So it's, it's tough. It's tough to get it right. But you know, again, who cares? You know, if you throw your leg over it and you're on the street or you're on the track, um, if you're smiling, that's where it, it ultimately makes the difference. Yeah. Kudos yeah. to the guy in Paris that has four of them and actually working to, uh, he works for, uh, Citroen, you know, the French, uh, car maker. And he does yeah, like all the, the designs for like the prototypes and stuff. So he has a lot of good painters, friends, I guess, because they also do the prototype paints and yeah, I think he restored one of two, uh, out of them. And now he actually like, he has he his own bucket of Candel track paint, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I've been waiting for someone to do that. I've been waiting for somebody to get the recipe just about right and then market it. (laughs) There's so many people out there that want it. I I can't tell you if it's absolutely right, though. But knowing that he has a few of them, uh, I I guess you can uh, compare. But sure. Yeah, people like I've seen people really going out of their way to restore them or to make research on on them. It's actually, it's such an icon that people are fascinated with it and they just like, yeah, they, they go all out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's okay. Like I, I love it when, not just about the Cannondale track, but when people take a bike that, you know, somebody took their hands and they put that bike together and later on, you know, decades later, somebody appreciates that enough to try and restore it back to its original condition. I really have an affinity for that. And that's something that I really enjoy about the collectors that I interface with around the world is they really care about restoring the past. Bikes look really different today. You know, we are going in a really different direction. And and I think that's great. I think that's really cool. You know, we have different methods and we have different materials to use. We have better wind tunnels and, and that's cool. But the bike's design is going in a really different direction than it was back in the 80s and 90s. And some of us have a real reverence for that. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, we may not have been doing it right, but we were trying new stuff. And that was what was exciting about that era is just all of the innovation that was being thrown at the track. And I think that's true with the Canada track too. When people really try and, and put some intent into um, historically restoring those frames, I really appreciate that. It's not the only way to do it. And, but it's one way. And if you're going to do it, you know, get it right, <laughs> you know, get the, yeah. get the right decals and get that down tube sticker that, doesn't come in the eBay pack and, and don't put the track label. If you're painting your bike green, it didn't have it, you know, like those kinds of things, um, make, make the difference if you're doing an historical restoration. Yeah. Well, one color that you can't get wrong is the, is the polished one, but talking about colors, uh, do you actually have a, a favorite color? Oh, you know, that's, that's hard to say. Um, I mean, I guess when it comes down to it, I'm all about that iconic blue. Um, I, it's just, they just really did a great job. Whoever was on that color committee, you know, they, they, they picked the right one because it's, <laughs> it's really cool. And it's just, it's, there's something about it being the iconic original that, that is really 
Um, it's really fun. But I, I mean, at this point in time, I only own one of each color that I like. So that's the blue. Um, I own a, a nearly perfect new old stock blue. And then I own one that's super, super beat up that I can actually ride. Um, I own the green and I own a polished. And I love them all. You know, I really love them all. I Some of them are more intimidating than others to, to ride. You know, like the polished one, interestingly enough, because it's not paint that can chip off, it scuffs and it scratches and yeah. it's in really good shape. And I don't want to go out and like lock it up. So I put stickers all over it to kind of preserve <laughs> the... But it's the blue. You know, I, I got to say, I go back to the blue. The, the green's really cool. It's really interesting in the light. It's it's kind of a fun, quirky 90s approach to paint with that strange hyper highlight stripe that they painted on it. But I guess if they're all out in front of me and I had to pick one, I guess I just got to go with that OG blue. All right. What about you, Fabian? I mean, I... Th- it's it's difficult to 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 like decide on this. I mean, now I have a blue one, and the blue one looks really good, even though it's repainted, not super accurately. It looks pretty nice. Uh, <laughs> but when I see like other ones, for example, on Pedal Room, there's a red one, I think, and that one looks really nice, even though it's not not an original yeah. colorway, yeah. right? But oh, oh really? it was okay, an then, original colorway. Okay. It was. They had oh, the yeah. Okay, then red. yeah, that yeah. one probably. Yeah. That one just looks fast standing still I and mean, i think that one just looks really nice <laughs> of course it is yeah i mean i think the viper red is my favorite and like even i think it was the last year they were made it was the last color available and so logos are actually different like there's a That's right. yeah there's difference on it and yeah the red ones are are so cool <laughs> yeah the red ones are interesting yeah yeah i think they even made a light uh, correct me if i'm wrong really but uh, i think they even made a, a light blue at some point that's right yep the the original year so 1992 early 1993 they did have and in fact it's the one listed in the catalog they don't even have the arctic blue listed in, in their catalogs um the one that's listed in 1993 is that the color that you speak of and it's kind of a uh, silvery blue and it's really neat and I have not yeah. been able to lay hands on one. They are they are tough to get a uh, hold of. Yeah, there's a there's a sixty one light blue in Switzerland, and yeah, it's a good looking color. Just need to grow a few more feet. Yeah, yeah, sixty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> so so there are like light blue, Arctic blue, uh, that highlighted green, uh, viper red, polished, and that's pretty much it, right? Well, there were some team bites. They did a few. Uh, EDS had a black team bike, had a little bit of sparkle in it. Um, but in terms of production colors, to my knowledge, those are the only ones that were available to the public. All right. I mean, and just out of curiosity, like if you had to estimate, how many Candle tracks have you seen in person, do you think? Oh God, have I seen in person? Uh, Well, I, you know, over the last 10 years or so, I have owned uh, so, so, so many. I mean, it's because they come and go, you know, they, they come into my life and then they go. And I think that's where I started to kind of consolidate information about Cannondale tracks. It wasn't necessarily that I'm a technical Mm. expert. It's that I have seen so many, like, I don't know, 50, 60 come through my hands. Um, so 
you know, I've seen a bunch of the serial numbers and I've seen a bunch of the paint and I've seen every single year that you, you, know, that, that you could possibly imagine. Um, so it's the repetition in seeing them. So in terms of like how many, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60. Oh and it just kind of happened accidentally, you know, like one day I wanted to get a Cannondale track and I couldn't find one. And I, you know, was looking and looking and asking around and trying to, <laughs> trying to buy one. And I saw one on eBay. This is before they went absolutely nuts, you know, saw one on eBay and I made a bid and then another one popped on eBay. So I made a bid on that one too, hoping, you know, I figured I'd be outbid. I always was. And I got both of them. And I was like, oh my God, like, how am I going to, I've never, <laughs> so then I had two and I felt really weird about having two. And so I, you know, put pictures out because I was going to sell one of them. And then people thought that I was into Canada track. So they started like, well, I want to sell mine. Do you want to buy mine? Because I want to sell mine. I'm like, oh, okay, because I know this other person who also reached out. And so I became kind of a clearinghouse for Canada tracks. Wow. You know, it wasn't that I was particularly interested in hoarding them. It wasn't that I, you know, wanted to collect all of them at one time. It's just that people kind of identified me as the Canada track lady, you know, and they, they let, reached out to me when they had one and other people reached out looking for them. So I just, had a spreadsheet going and I made connections as they came in the door. Um, so yeah, so it was mostly unintentional. You know, you pick, you, you pick things up over the years, you know, you, you pick things up, you pick up the subtleties. I could tell which ones were repainted and I have seen so many come in and out and so many serial numbers um, in various places on the frames that I can pretty much spot. I can spot issues, you know, I can spot when they've been repainted or I can spot those in pictures now just because I've had so many come in and out the door. Yeah. The Cannondale track lady is just the most badass <laughs> username ever. <laughs> I, know. I know. You know, it's funny because it wasn't intentional. It just completely sort of morphed into it. It was, it basically just started with those two. I took a picture of the two and then I got a third and then I got a fourth and then I got rid of the first and then I got a fifth and then I got rid of the second, you know, it just kept happening and I kept taking pictures and people just kept associating me with that. And so I, and it was fine because I really, really love the frame. I love writing it. I love looking at it. I think it's a, an historic icon. I think it's a cool thing that people love it. And, um, but it was, it was never my intent to, to be a clearinghouse for Canada no. tracks, but it's been a fun adventure. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense like that. You, you, you live in the U S and then there's, they're bound to be a bunch of them, right. Where they're all developed. Uh, well, yeah, just just as a small exactly. follow-up question, then, yep. since you place a like a large amount of importance on accu historically accurate uh, restoration as well, do you generally care who if you sell a candidate track? Do you generally generally care who you're selling it to, or is it just like first come first serve? Or oh, not at all. Yeah, no, I don't make I uh, something that I love about bikes um and and that the industry has a lot of work to do on is is access you know i i think that um access is important uh, there you know there's the the saying that the the ultimate goal is butts on bikes you know what we want is we want people to get on a bike and experience the joy of being on a bike and experiencing the joy of a city while on a bike it's really different from being in a car or even being on a motorcycle so um, to answer your question, no, I, if somebody reaches out and they want a Cannondale track, um, I'm all about trying to get that Cannondale track to them. And, you know, the, as we've already discussed, pricing is very exclusive yeah. right now. And that is that that bothers me because I know that there are folks that would just that really love this frame, like truly in their heart, just want to want a piece of that iconic, you know, story. Um, and they're locked out of the game. And, and that bothers me. Yeah. 
Um, there's also, uh, you know, I certainly don't control the market Cannondale tracks and, um, but again, to answer your question, no, I don't, I'm not selective at all about uh, who I sell bike to. If somebody reaches out, they want to buy it. We come to an agreement on price. Right. It's theirs. So the Cannondale track happened and it was now we know that it was a great frame and that stiffness that you feel in the drivetrain is something different. Um, and then the Candel Capo happened and the CAD 5, which is, I believe, basically the, the, the same thing, the CAD 5 track and then the CAD 10. I can't say they are better than the Candel track because I, that's and that's my own opinion, but Candel Capo, the CAD track and the cat 10 track uh the they have more of a road geometry the, the candle kind of stopped that really aggressive stiff compact geometry yeah uh so what happened well what do you think happened for for candle to like why did we go downhill from the candle track and also <laughs> like I think like road wise, it's like cat 13 now, but track wise, we're still block at cat 10. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do, do, do you have a, do you have a, an opinion on that? Uh, well, I have an opinion. Um, and my opinion and yours are very closely aligned. I think they are, well, let's just say they're not to my liking. I have no interest in, in them whatsoever. I, I don't think there is a, is that beautiful design element. Um, I think the, um, geometry is atrocious. I mean, again, this is for, for my track desires. You know, if I'm building the track bike of my dreams, I want that rear wheel tucked up as tight as it can be. And I want that front fork, you know, as close as it can be before I have flip it over with pedal you know, overlap. <laughs> and it feels good on the track. You know, it just feels amazing. And to have the to have those Cannondale tracks that followed the 93 through the 95 start to stretch out, um, kind of breaks my heart a little bit, you know, and I'm sure that they had a lot of reasons behind the way they did it. You know, maybe they're more deeply immersed in track culture or understand, you know, how energy is, is channeled to that back wheel than I do. But I feel like the era is over after 1995 in terms of the track. And I think that they think it's over too, or like you said, they would be, it wouldn't be stuck at the CAD 10, you know, we'd right, be right up there at the CAD 20 or whatever by now. Yeah. But I think people lost interest because there are other bikes out there that do the job better. And maybe there's um, a little bit more attention paid to, to the design element of it. I, um, it's disappointing, you know, but I also know that they're perfectly reasonable bikes. I know a lot of people own them. I know a lot of people are really happy with them, but for me, Without that tight geometry and without that attention to aesthetic, um, I lost interest after 1995. Yeah. Uh, Candle, uh, for the CAD track 15, contact us. We'll, we'll just point you into the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put, put us on the selection committee for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, especially on the callers. We, we want to know the callers. <laughs> Most definitely. Uh, as we said, uh, Getting today, getting a an OG Candel track is kind of a hard task. As uh, for tracking them down and then price wise, uh, and the new Candel tracks, let's say, are let's say different, uh, special. That's <laughs> uh, kind and, of you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so like, there's there's been 
a lot of replicas and people and companies that build and I will quote um, heavily inspired by a 90s track frame and so people created replicas so to say a few like Colossi, uh, Pelizzoli, I don't know like Kendo and if it's not a replica it's something that has been heavily inspired um do you have a, a take on that yeah i mean I, again i think that's okay i mean it is such a beautiful and sexy frame that why wouldn't you reproduce it you know cannondale's not taking advantage of the the gorgeous design from from the 90s so it's not surprising that colossi or or york or some of the other uh firms are are capitalizing on that that beautiful original design with a couple of improvements. You know, like we've already talked about the, those dropouts, um, having something that we can replace the inserts so it, it has a longer life. And I'm cool with that. You know, again, I think the more people that get to enjoy what I enjoy about the Cannondale track in another bike, um, something that's more disposable, something that's less financial risk, you know, something that you feel okay locking up downtown and going in and having a nice coffee or something. I'm all for that. I guess where I draw the line is when people try and use a, you know, quote replica and try and make it look like a Cannondale track. That that to me is getting into um, something more along the lines of a counterfeit. Uh, so if if you want to um, take, you really can't improve upon perfection. The, the Cannondale track was exquisite in, for a, a number of reasons. So the fact that these firms want to offer that experience, that ride experience and that visual experience to other people, I am all for it. You know, get out there and get your butt on a bike and really have fun. But don't try and make it look like a Cannondale track. You know, don't use the same paint color. Don't use the same kind of logo. Um, make it your own, you know, like own it. If you're gonna, if you're gonna do it, if you're gonna use it, if you're gonna replicate it, or if you're gonna do an ode to the Cannondale track, put your own uh, twist on it. Um, I guess, you know, that's just my, again, it's, it's that, um, reverence for the history of a bike. I think there's something beautiful about recognizing the original and leaving it alone. Um, use it, use what was good about it, improve the, the weak parts of it, put it out there and put a different color paint on it, you know, put your own, um, decals on it. Don't try and make it a Cannondale track. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, I think I agree with that as well. Then if people have an, have a counterfeit one or like a replica and they pass it off as the real thing rather than just owning that it's a replica. I think, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's a very, yeah. very cool thing to do. Um, but be, besides that, for the Candle track, do you think there's any other bike from that generation or perhaps this generation even that could reach this type of, yeah, reputation? Oh, you know, if I knew that, if I future. had a crystal ball, I'd buy a warehouse and start stocking it away right now. <laughs> right? <laughs> Like, you know, who, of course, I, of course, there's going to be something that somebody comes up with that's um, 20, 30 years from now. Yeah, who knows? Maybe it's going to be one of the mash variants. You know, maybe it's going to be uh, some kind of prototype that comes up. There's always going to be something that um, people are going to look back on with great reverence. Um, you know, maybe it's going to be the Red Hook bikes, you know, the Red Hook winter bikes. I don't know what it's going to be. Um, it's fun. It, that's part of the really fun thing of it being about a bike enthusiast and a collector is just kind of watching the, the frenzy, you know, like where do people's um, energies land? Uh, I don't know yeah. what they're going to be, of course. And I find it really interesting what people tend to flock toward. 
Um, in, in terms of the new bikes, I don't know. I, I just, I'm not a big fan. Uh, I'm not a big fan of just kind of the thick blocky tubing that's coming up. I know there's a reason for it. I understand, you know, the, the engineering behind it, but <laughs> I, I guess I'm stuck in the eighties and nineties. I dig it. You know, I love the design. I love the elegance of it. I love kind of the handcrafted nature and the innovation that went into the design. And I think there's a lot of people that are, are with me on that. You know, you're seeing, like we already talked about, the piece of concept is, uh, has gained a lot of um, kind of a cult following. And of course, the GT, the GTB is, um, I, I, I'm pretty much locked out of that game too. It's, uh, they, they're creeping up in price. Absolutely. But again, you know, there's, there's so many other um, bikes that replicate that same experience that, yes, there's going to be, those, some of those things are going to turn into collectibles and some of us are going to be scratching our heads over why, but it's just the nature of things, you know, it's just the nature of things and, um, lack of everybody having access and just kind of the elitism of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense yeah. in the end as well. Yeah. No one can really anticipate. Who knows? Maybe in like 50 years, the Tracklock Rush version of Corey Yerkes will be like legendary. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe your mash work is going to be like three grand on eBay. <laughs> I like my mash work. I don't want to let it go. I know. I love mine too. They're, they're amazing bikes. Yeah. And like yours is like, okay, mine is rusted, but yours it's, it's in the serious shape now. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is it it was a prototype um yeah it's it uh has definitely seen some action <laughs> um talking about things that are going to be remembered uh thing that we already remember today and that have a huge like it's a huge piece of history uh into into your collection it's the is the candel uh seiko mario cipollini uh, the track version uh, yeah. that, that you own. Mm-hmm. You want to talk a little bit about that and give us like some details? Sure. Um, yeah. So as you know, Chippo mostly rode um, the the bulk of his his um, glory was on on the road, but he had a, he had a number of track bikes made for him, and the one that I own is um, from 1999. Um, and what's interesting about mine is it's different from the other track frames that were typically produced for for Chippo because um, most of the frames that were built for him were with round tubing. And the purpose was to be ridden in the off-road season to, you know, again, to improve that pedal stroke and that, that efficiency. And that's why a lot of people ride track bikes in, in the off-season. So, and... For, for Chippo, one of the, the main features of the track bikes that were built for him is, uh, you know, the round tubing, but also that it had bottle mounts. So it was clear that this was, you know, it was a training bike. It, it wasn't a, a competition. It wasn't really built for the track. It was built for, for improvement. So the frame that I own is Aero. You know, it's got this really interesting Aero tubing. It's super, super thick. And when you view it from the back, it just kind of disappears because it's just like, you know, the knife edge. And it's, it's really interesting in that respect. Um, and what's also interesting about the one that I own is that it has sponsored uh, decals on it. So most of the frames that were built for him, there are some that have sponsored decals, but most of them do not. They were, again, they were built as training bikes. So this one has um, 
all the sponsor details on it, uh, decals on it. Um, and one, another thing that's kind of interesting about the decals is that uh, Campagnolo was uh, one of the sponsors is painted on the bike, which is really unusual for Seiko. So, you know, the, the bike was built specifically for him. The uh, serial number has his name in it. You know, it's, it's Chipple <laughs> and um, it's crazy. You know, it's big. It's, it's uh, it's a big bike. It's the only one in my collection that I can't and don't ride. Uh, there's no way. I, I, I mean, I tried a few times, but it's <laughs> like, there's no point. I am short and he is tall. So, you know, it's, it's 60 centimeters, I think on the top two, but it's 66 centered atop on the, uh, oh, wow. so 66. it is, oh. it, there's an enormous extension above the top two. So that's why it's 66. Um, so I keep thinking that, you know, somebody's going to find this bike and reach out to me and be like, dude, it's built for me. It's like custom my fit. You got to sell it to me. And, and I think eventually it will end up in someone else's hands who appreciates it as much as I do. But the fact that it was, you know, designed in Connecticut here in the U S and, you know, the tubes were laser cut to, to a very, very specific, specific geometry for him. And, um, then they were welded and heat treated and painted, uh, in Pennsylvania here in the U S. So it's an amazing piece of historic American craftsmanship and, um, interesting, of course, that Chippo really favored Cannondale, you know, being from a country that, dominated bike production I, I just find it really interesting um yeah so it's a cool bike yeah definitely it looks like it as well the fact that it is just too big i feel i feel like if i had that kind of bike on my wall every other day it would be yeah i can i can maybe try again and, and just like go back <laughs> that's it you know i i just want to ride it so bad like i really want to see that I can do because it is, you can tell that it's just engineered to death. And I just want to get it out on the track so bad and just let it loose. But of course I can't. And <laughs> it's the same thing. I, I look at it and I'm like, well, maybe if I put a shorter stem on it or maybe if I put a straight fit. But it's like, no, you will never, ever, ever be able to fit 60 top tubes. I'll stop trying. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good looking frame and yeah. really unique. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, and so given that that's the only one that you cannot ride in your collection, is there any are there any other bikes that you would like put on the same level as the Candle Track in in your, like in terms of riding quality or history or just just in, like have a spe special place in your heart? Oh yeah, I mean yeah, uh, my heart <laughs> my heart lives with my collection. It's um, I. I Think the thing, I mean, I have a bunch of different bikes with a bunch of different geometries that were built for a bunch of different purposes. And the major, I mean, I tend toward the bikes from the eighties and nineties that were really funky, you know, that, that were, um, innovative design attempts. Some of them worked, some of them plopped, but that's what I find interesting about them is the innovation. So a lot of them, I don't collect for their ride quality. I collect because, you know, a bunch of dudes were sitting around in a factory somewhere, scratching their heads, trying to figure out how to gain, you know, a half a second on the track. And they, you know, removed the seat tube or they shrunk the front wheel or they tried all these really cool things. And that's what I find interesting about the 80s and the 90s. And that's what I tend to gravitate toward in terms of, you know, my heart. You know, I see a bike and I'm like, wow, that's really weird. I got to have it. So um, riding is a very different experience than you know, that aesthetic that I look for or that engineering ingenuity that I look for. 
I don't ride like it is not. Um, I do not get out there because I really, really, really want to ride the fastest. You know, I get out there and ride to have fun. So I tend toward the bikes that when I get on them and I get out and roll around and enjoy Portland, they feel good. And those are not my low pros. You know, I get out and roll around Portland <laughs> on my low pro. I have to go to the chiropractor afterwards. <laughs> so it, it, I think, you know, my tendency to ride some bikes more than others is not based on how cool they are or how innovative they are or how well-crafted they are. They're what feels good for the type of riding that I do. Yeah. So that's, I think the Cannondale track is very much, it's that perfect combination of just a little too twitchy for the streets that makes it fun um, and comfortable. You know, I, I travel with my Cannondale track a lot just because it's a lightweight bike. I can throw it together in, you know, three minutes and be out on the streets and have a really um, comfortable ride for a full day. But there's also something really super fun about getting a tacky on and just going out, knowing it's not going to feel great, <laughs> but just going out and, you know, just jetting around Portland early in the morning before anybody gets up and just putting a few miles on. That's really super fun, too. So, yeah, there are some in my collection that um, that have my heart more than others. But in terms of what I actually ride, it's it's very much based on style. Where would you um yeah. where would you place the your bishop bikes in within your collection? Oh, the the bishop is that what you asked yeah, about? Yeah, sorry, the bishop one. Yeah. Oh man, that thing's like a comfy couch. It's it's unbelievable. Um, it's the absolute perfect combination of world class craftsmanship and uh, just an absolute Cadillac when you get it out on the track. It's it's just um, I, I don't know. Chris just sprinkles magic fairy dust and everything that he puts his hands on it's um it's a glorious glorious bike in by all accounts in all realms like there's there's just no flaw in that bike yeah it's probably my favorite bike in your collection from what i've seen it's such a such a good looking bike as well it's yeah it's unbelievably well crafted and you know it's, it's that perfect balance between what i really love about the 80s and the 90s is that artistry you know there was that innovation but there was also that attention to craftsmanship that was something that was really valued back then and Chris still embodies that, you know, and, and he understands that that was the focus of the eighties and nineties. You know, he's got this crazy collection of lugs and, and vintage tubing, and that's what he builds his bikes out of. And that's why he just completely is, I, I just followed his feet with, with adoration because he's that kind of old school craftsman and, um, has that reverence for, um, you know, historic new old stock tubing. But he also builds bikes that are for today. You know, you can take it out today and it it um, it kills on the track. Yeah, looks like it. Yeah, he, he has that collection of fluted tubing that is just, oh, so good. Yeah, it's it's amazing. He's got fluted tubing and just crazy lugs. And, you know, it's interesting because he also um, has, he was a messenger in the 90s too. And he used a Cannondale track as his bike and he still has it hanging on his wall. Huh. OG. So cool. Yeah, OG. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, then within like the fixture community, would you call yourself more of a fixture cyclist or of a collector? Or is it like a balance between the two? Oh, yeah, it's both. I mean, I, they're, they're different to me. Um, being somebody who appreciates what it feels like to be on a fixed gear and, um, you know, it's, it's an intentional choice. There's a lot of different styles of bikes that I could ride and I pick fixed gear because it feels amazing. And I don't have to tell you two this, you know why <laughs> we ride fixed gear, but that 
you know, the draw to ride fixed gear is a completely different beast and occupies a completely different part of my life than the desire to collect really interesting bikes from the 80s and 90s. I mean, of course, they're interrelated, but um, being a cyclist and riding, very, very different than being um, a, a fan of the innovation of the 80s and 90s. I think they're uh, really different, and I embody both. Yeah, it's good to see as well, then. So you've been, like, uh, trading, uh, buying, selling bikes uh, to like for your collection but is there any bike you wouldn't part with it's like the one that is just going to stay until until the end <laughs> that's a really good question um you know i i don't think so i i think i'm just sort of a temporary steward of each one of these bikes you know they they've all been in somebody else's hands before and they will all be in somebody else's hands later. Um, there are some that right now, you know, you would have to pry out of my cold dead hands, but I can't <laughs> see that I would actually, you know, there, there's not one that's like, that one's going to the deathbed with me. Uh, you know, I'll never get rid of it. I, I will, I will get rid of it. it. At some point it will pass on to another collector that will appreciate it and love it as much as I do. Um, And, you know, my, my interests tend to ebb and flow too. So at one point I was really, really interested in Russian bikes. So that's all I wanted. I was just going to get all the Russian built bikes or the Russian uh, team bikes. And then I became interested in something else. So some of those sort of filtered out of my collection and I, I took that, that investment and put it into, you know, an, a laser or something like that. So what's fun about collecting is um, just sort of, learning new things like once i clue into something different i want to know more about it and then i want to own one so i have to if i have to sell off some of my collection in order to keep that sort of momentum going and it's also really fun to pass bikes off to people and let them enjoy them as much as i have i i don't think there's a lot of value in just having and holding and locking them up somewhere and nobody else gets to enjoy them and nobody else gets to see them And that's part of why I take pictures of them is so they can be out there and people can know that they are out there. I love it when other people do that, where I get to enjoy their collections or the things that they observe about bikes. It's what makes, it's what extends my love of bikes is, is being able to see it through other people's eyes. So yeah, I, there's some that I love right now. It doesn't seem like I'll ever get rid of them, but I've always said that about all the bikes that I sold in the past. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get that too. Yeah. To, to all the listeners out there already trying to, to DM Amy, it doesn't mean they're all for sale right now. So just stop. <laughs> Thank you for that very important clarification. <laughs> no, because I feel that like if I was a listener, I would, I would do it. I was like, oh, so I mean, I can, I can buy something right now, right? You know, it never hurts to ask. Sometimes people, they talk me into it, you know, like that, that 2003 piece to concept. I kind of thought I'd hold on to that one because it took me a while to get a second because I had one and then I sold it and I kind of regretted it. But I was like, ah, oh, whatever. And then I got another one. And this guy was just such a fan and I just, I couldn't say no. So who knows, you know, who knows? Sometimes we can strike deals. I love to do trades too. I think it's really fun to swap. So, um, no, that's right. All your listeners, I don't have a big black for sale list right now, but you know, <laughs> it also doesn't hurt to, to communicate with people. Yeah. Well, like nowadays, lots of people in the fixed community, they share like these pictures like you on Instagram, right? But there's also collectors that do not use Instagram and I'm, I'm sure you have like connections with them through other means. 
but is there any specific bike collection that you admire or envy from from either Instagram or off Instagram? Oh yeah. Um oh, of course. Yeah. I I wouldn't say envy. I I don't feel that way about bikes at all. I I'm in it for all of us. You know, I want us all to win. I want us all to have the bike that we want. Mm. Um but I there's certainly collections that I admire and they're not some always some big expensive Uh, collection. Sometimes they're just really well curated. I know a bunch of people that I follow on Instagram that I really enjoy watching what bikes they choose and how they build them up. And sometimes they are, they're simple production bikes, but they're really, really creative. And mostly I admire that they are documenting them. And I think that although I would like to be connected with collectors that are offline, I don't know them. Oh. You know, I'm I'm not deeply immersed in some secret bike world. I wish I was, but I don't know where that secret bike world is. I learn about um, collectors or people, uh, other bike enthusiasts by uh, social media, you know, and yeah. if they're not on social media, I can't find them. And um, I, it's problematic because I want to see their collections. I want to enjoy their bikes. Mm. Um, and some people, that's not the way they, they choose to share theirs. And it's, it's theirs to do with what they want, but what a shame, you know, because I really enjoy seeing uh, what other people do with their bikes. Yeah, I have like this this big hardcover, like coffee table type book about Japanese steel bikes. And there are all these very cool historic frames and everything. And then they always credit the person who uh, allowed them, you know, well, the people who made the book to photograph the bikes. And I was Googling the person's name because his name kept popping up everywhere. Like, uh, um, like an English name, I think it was an like American guy. I don't know. I was Googling him and I couldn't find anything about him. So I was just like thinking there must be a way for these people, like these really underground collectors who have these crazy collections that they, they communicate with each other somehow, just not where like normal us peasants can find them on the internet. yeah well sadly i'm still down in the trenches you know trying to (laughs) trying to scrap my way i I haven't made it into the elite circle yet Ah, i thought you were my way in (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah they have that whole underground connection like john week style (laughs) 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 well i'd like to make a movie about breaking into that um i sure don't know where they live (laughs) yeah but yeah, there is a there is that. I think he's located in Taiwan, but uh, W Water on oh, Instagram. Yeah, I mean yeah. he has like huge collection and some really really good looking bikes in there. Oh, absolutely, and components. I mean that guy has some just an incredible deep bench of really interesting and rare components. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy to see what he has. I mean, I'm, I'm really honestly a, the cafe as well because it's a, it is mainly a cafe, I think, and he just has a collection, like a private collection. <sighs> Maybe one day. Yeah, I, I think that guy just needed to start a cafe so he could have a, have a way to, to display his collection. I'm, I'm, I, I find it endlessly fascinating that he has a cafe that's built around a, a vintage collection of bicycles. I, I just, I don't know how that works, but I absolutely love it, and I can't wait to visit someday. The best excuse, like you don't have more space in your apartment. Yeah, just build a cafe. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I uh, ta- talking about uh, components. Um, I've seen that picture from you back then. Uh, was that Sugino CHCD crankset, and there's like you you have like a white one, right? Well, I did. I do not have that anymore. 
Yeah. Okay. And is it? Yeah. So uh, the white one was a prototype, but is it actually carbon? I am. I am generally interested into this. Well, my understanding is that the white one was fiberglass. Uh, I think the 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 original ones that you see, the typical ones that you see that are black, um, carbon fiber. Absolutely, you can see the weave in it. But I'm pretty sure that the white one um, was a fiberglass variant, much like the 75 rear wheel, uh, also fiberglass. So I think it was kind of a prototype to to take to trade shows. Yeah, that, that's a that's a good looking part. I heard that it, it rides really stiff, oh, God, but yeah. it's a good looking part. <laughs> Yeah, it's gorgeous. That was one of those really heartbreaking. It was one of those things that I kind of thought I would hold on to that one, but somebody reached out. They had a super, super special build and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse and I let it go. And I love looking at the pictures of them because they are really, really interesting components. Yeah, I have a, I have a friend who who got one and he put it, he put that onto a Samsung Low Pro with an amazing paint. And yeah, that, that thing look, yeah. looks banger, really. Uh, I've seen that thing. It's absolutely gorgeous. What a beautiful bike to put that on. I love that red sparkle paint and those crazy handlebars, those drops. Uh, things are nuts. Yeah. It's a good looking bike. I like it a lot. Well, uh, that pretty much wraps it up for today. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Amy. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for having the conversation. I really enjoy this forum and, and thanks to all the listeners that are keeping that fixed gear spirit alive. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, everything we discussed today will be in the show notes uh, on the blog, slowspintsociety.com. Uh, you can also find us on the Discord server. The invite link is also in the show notes. And you can find us on our personal accounts, Instagram accounts. I go by at underscore pull underscore you and Fabian at fab.ism. Uh, Amy, where can people find you online? Oh, the best way to get in touch with me is through Instagram. I am a danger PDX and PDX is the airport code for Portland's airport. So PDX is just kind of a low way that we refer to Portland. So I'm a danger PDX on Instagram. Um, let's connect. Absolutely. If you have any question or you want to share a thought on everything cycling related, you can email the show at this address, slowspinpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, the music for the show is lovely swindler by Amaria. And the illustration is by at Julia Joe on Instagram. Support us by sharing the show with your friends or by giving us a good review on the platform of your choice. It really helps us out and makes this podcast more visible to anyone craving more fixed gear content. If you want to support us even more, you can have access to the extended cut of the podcast. You can visit our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash podcast, and pledging at any level will grant you access to the pre and after show, which is around 40 minutes of extra content per week. But recently it has it has one more being like an hour, right? Yeah. More like an hour, yeah. Yeah, like 30 minutes and 30 minutes. We are now at 11 Patreons bringing us closer to our monthly goal and more privilege for every tier. Thank you so much for your support. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh man, that, that was a long outro. Oh <laughs> but there's a lot to say. I feel there's more and more to say every time. But yeah, so yeah. after show now, right? Like 15 minutes? Yeah.
Yeah, but we're gonna say bye bye before. Oh, oh no. Okay, I messed up. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll see you guys next Monday. Bye bye. Yeah. Bye.